Grateful to be with you guys today, excited. Today's a great day, had a great Saturday. Hopefully you had a great Saturday yesterday with friends or family doing yard work, picking up all those branches and leaves that blew off on Friday night. Uh, But it was a good day yesterday. I'm excited about today, the Bronco game. I know one of two things, when you shout or clap today, either the Broncos just scored or you're really excited about my sermon. So I'm gonna assume it's the latter, okay? The whole morning, I'm just gonna assume it's always the latter. Woohoo! just scored Thomas, way to go. Uh, If you're new, thanks for being here. Uh, might have been said before, but fill out that connection card, turn into I'm new table, and we'll get you a free gift and a bunch of information about what God's doing in this place and how we can get you involved. Uh, we are in the middle of a series entitled By the Book. And uh, if you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, here's kind of the basic gist, things we've been talking about. Today we are talking again about sex. Uh, so if you are with a little one or your kids are with you and you're not, you're not super comfortable with me being the one bringing this to their attention, uh, then please go downstairs. We've got some great opportunities for them down there. Uh, But it's a part two of the sex talk, and it's an important one. Here's the framework in which that talk is taking place. Uh, When someone says they want to do something by the book, they are more or less saying they want to do something the right way. They don't want to cut any corners. They don't want to take any shortcuts. Let's file this paperwork or handle this situation or move forward with this new hire. Let's do this by the book. The problem, though, is determining which book we're actually talking about, which book we're referring to. Because according to some books, like The Secret, the key to increasing your health or your wealth is to combine the frequencies of your brain with the frequencies of the things you want, and voila, magic. So are we doing things according to that book? According to other books, like A Thousand Shades of Grey, if your sex life doesn't include sadistic acts and masochism, then you're just missing out. So are we supposed to live according to that book? Is that the one we're referring to? That's where the Bible comes in, why it's so important. There are a lot of books out there, a lot of publications out there that claim to have all the answers, that claim to have it all figured out, but there's actually only one that does, and it's this book. And you could read all these books, and we encourage you to peruse and take a few of these books home with you. There's some great information in there. And the Bible does, in fact, often quote outside sources, pagan literature, because there is some truth in that. But when it comes to the entirety of this subject matter, When it comes to knowing it from beginning to end and the fullness of it and what's truly right and real, this is the book. This is the one. Reminds me of a story of a three-year-old little boy. He went with his dad to see a new litter of kittens. On returning home, he informed his mother, well, there were five boy kittens and and seven girl kittens, he told, told his mom. Well, how do you know that, the mother asked. Well, daddy picked them up and looked underneath, he replied. I think it's printed on their bottom. So we have a lot of confusion, don't we? A lot of questions in terms of sex, sexuality, what's right, what's not right. And it's not printed on the bottom. It's printed in the book. And so we're looking at the book. How do we handle and deal with money, sex, and power in particular? And how do we do those things by the book? What does it mean as a Christian to use and enjoy these good gifts without making them more important than the giver of the gifts? And again, we're talking about sex part two, so buckle up. Uh, Here we go. Let me pray to begin. Father... We seek your wisdom now. We seek your truth because it is so much greater and so much better than all the others. Speak to us now, Father. We hope that we will be able to put aside all the other things we've learned and just hear you directly this morning. Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Not sure if this has ever happened to you or not when you're reading the Bible, but sometimes you come across something, maybe like in a daily devotional or whatnot, and you're reading it and you stop and think, you look at the front cover, is this the Bible? Did I pick up the right book this morning? 
That happens sometimes when you read Song of Solomon. I told you about that book last week. It's a rather sensual and erotic book, and most outsiders don't expect to see that in God's holy word. That also happens when it comes to 2 Samuel chapter 13. A little background into this chapter will be helpful to you before I read it to you. Uh, King David, one of the most important people, one of the most revered people in all of Scripture, had a lot of wives and a lot of kids. And by a lot, I mean a lot. Scripture says he has at least seven wives, maybe even more, and at least 19 children. Some say he had upwards of 30 children. It makes John and Kate plus eight seem rather tame, don't you think? Eight, really? That's it? Well, then we continue in the story. We read this about his first and oldest son. He was a man by the name of Amnon, David's first son, his oldest son. And wouldn't you know it, Amnon falls head over heels in love with someone. The problem with this someone, though, is that it's his half-sister, Tamar. The Bible says that Tamar is drop-dead gorgeous, and Amnon desperately desires to be with her sexually. And as we're going to see in this story this morning, Amnon ends up getting entangled and twisted and caught up in this mess, in this web of sexual sin, but it's a web that many of us have been entangled in ourselves, maybe even are entangled in in this moment. It's a long story, but it's an important one and a good one, so let me read it to you in its entirety, 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah. David's brother, Jonah, or David's brother was Shemaiah. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon one day, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? What's up? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everybody left. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom, so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in the bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, Don't force on me. Don't force this on me. Don't force me. Such a thing would not be done in all of Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You'd be like one of the wicked fools in Israel's history. Please speak to the king. He'll not keep me from marrying you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be an even greater wrong than what you've already done to me. 
But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out, bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head, and she tore that robe that she was wearing. She put her hands on her head, and she went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Well, be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon. He had disgraced his sister Tamar. You see what I'm talking about? You read through that story and you're like, what? Is that in the Bible? Maybe some of you this week are going to read your Bible a little bit more, knowing that that story like that is in there. But it is in there, even though it sounds more like something you would read in National Enquirer or see, you know, lived out in first person on Jerry Springer, even though I know no one in this church has any clue what those two things are. It's in the Bible, and for very, very good reason. You see, God gave us this story because what happened between Amnon and Tamar teaches us more about sexuality and sexual sin more than any other story I've ever read. And when I use the phrase this morning, sexual sin or lust, I'm talking about everything from pornography to masturbation to casual sex to mental fantasies. All of that stuff is lumped together in that phrase for me. And even though this particular story, the one that we read, happened thousands of years ago, it perfectly and powerfully addresses several things. In particular, it addresses the lies. The lies that Playboy, Maxim, Esquire, raunchy romance novels, and the entire porn industry, it addresses the lies that those things are based off of. See, according to Romans 1, this is something we looked at a couple of weeks together, all sin is based on lie. When we sin, what we're simply doing is trading the truth of God that we have in for a lie. We're believing that over this. And that is especially true when it comes to sexual sin and lust. Lust is all about lies. It's all about lies. And like Amnon, many of us believe those lies to be true. So this morning, I don't want to focus too much on, on what you should or should not be doing in terms of your sexuality. I want to focus on what you should be thinking. Because it really begins and ends with what's going on up here. If the Bible is true, it says that we are transformed by the renewing of what? The renewing of our minds. And therefore, we have to rethink what we're thinking about. Let's take a few minutes to expose and talk about the lies behind lust. Lie number one, it's no big deal. It's just no big deal. See, a lot of people have come to believe their thought life doesn't affect any other part of their life. It's okay to lust after someone or have sexual thoughts or fantasies about them as long as you don't act on them. And I'm sure that's exactly what Amnon most likely believed. I'm sure he never intended on raping and shaming his sister, but that's exactly what he did. And the Bible hints at where it all went wrong and where it all started. The text tells us Amnon obsessed over Tamar. It says that for a reason. Because you see, seeing Tamar was not the problem. Thinking Tamar was gorgeous was not the problem. Saying to himself or others, I wish we weren't related. That's not the problem. The problem is when he obsessed over her. You've probably heard the saying before, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. 
That's how it comes. That's how it pertains to you. That's what you do when it comes to sexual sin. You can't stop those thoughts from happening, those images from flashing across your screen, that beautiful person from walking in front of you. You can't stop that from happening. But are you obsessing over it? Are you taking it to another level, a different level, a level that will destroy you? That's what Amnon did. That's where he went wrong. By obsessing over her, he allowed his sexual desires for her, her thought, his thoughts about her, to dominate everything. And over the course of time, those harmless thoughts, they turned into a horrific, horrific act. That's why Jesus said what he did about lust and adultery in Matthew 5. We don't have time this morning to talk about it. But he equated the two as one, didn't he? Maybe it's because he knows that when you lust, you've already lost. When you've lusted after someone up here, you've already lost the battle. But it's no big deal, right, Thomas? I mean, come on. It's okay to look. It's okay to dream. It's okay to think about them. It's okay to fantasize. Those are my secret, harmless, innocuous thoughts. And so we subscribe to Playboy. We watch porn. We read raunchy novels. We think about what it would be like to be with someone sexually. Because, come on, it's like I'm actually going to do anything wrong or actually act on this stuff. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. And what happens in your mind doesn't stay in your mind. That's why God speaks so fervently and so frequently about all of this. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Your thought life isn't important, not according to the Lord. Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We take captive a couple of thoughts a day, but not every single one. Those that are easy to make obedient to Christ. No, we take every thought captive. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is raunchy, whatever is gross, whatever is horrific, whatever is sexual... That's what we think about all the time. No, whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, that's what we think about. In Ephesians 4, 17, don't be like the Gentiles in the futility of their thinking. God knows that what you think about is in fact what you're all about. From attitudes to actions, emotions, energy, it all comes back to your thoughts. It all comes back to your mind. And psychologists are all over this. Self-fulfilling prophecy, positive self-talk, whatever it might be, the truth is that your thought life has huge implications for the rest of your life. And one author put it this way, the garbage that you put in your mind eventually runs downstream. Kyle Eidelman, when preaching about this very same thing, used the following analogy. I think it's perfect. There's a branch of government out there known as the Food and Drug Administration. Everybody heard of the FDA before? They set the standards for our food. They determine uh, the quality. They protect the quality and the purity of our food. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, their standards for purity, they might not be as high as you had hoped. Take coffee beans, for example. How many of you had a cup of coffee this morning? Anybody? Or how many? 27 cups of coffee. Okay, a few of you. Well, according to the FDA, if 10% or more of the coffee beans are insect infested, then you can't sell them. Isn't that good to know? But 9.99999% of insect infestation, drink it up. How about mushrooms? The FDA says that mushrooms must be taken off the shelves if there are 20 or more maggots per every 15 grams. Whew! Glad about that one. I mean, 19 maggots? No big deal. Those are the FDA's standards of purity, and they're not as high as you would like. The question is, what are your standards of purity? And are they as high as God would like? 
See, what are your standards in terms of what you allow to take place and happen up here? Most of us have drawn the line somewhere, but why? Why did you draw the line in that particular place? Let me put it another way. How many maggots are too many for you? How many maggots are too many for you? And if you put maggots in your mind, they're going to come out somewhere else. Look at the standard, 1 Thessalonians 4. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body, live in holiness, honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Know what you think about. It's a big deal. It really does matter because what happens up here is going to come out somewhere else. Our second lie that we tend to believe is this. I've got this all under control. See, when it comes to our sexual sin, our sexual fantasies, most of us think that we're strong enough or that we're mature enough to handle it, that it's not going to get out of control on our watch, right? We're going to handle this appropriately. We can manage it. We can deal with this. Well, if you have it under control, then how would you get in this mess in the first place? If you have it under control, then how, why are you getting sucked deeper into it? If you have it under control, why can't you stop doing it? If you have it under control, then why are you working so hard to cover it up and lie about it? Oh, wait, you don't have it under control. It has control over you. We see this in the life of Amnon, don't we? I mean, this man can't even think straight or look straight because he is so overwhelmed and so overcome by his lust and his passion for Tamar. He didn't have control over this passion. It had control over him. So he sees Tamar. He starts making plans to be with her sexually. He starts looking at her differently. Then he starts feeling differently. He starts looking differently, the text says. Then he starts lying through his teeth to his own parents. He comes up with stories and fakes and illness. He is out of control. And so are some of us when it comes to this sin. Sexual sin isn't something you manage or deal with or control. Look at how Job puts it. Job 31, lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. It's a fire that burns all the way to hell. Why? Because it will wipe out everything I own. Lust? Really? No, no, I got it under control. Job says, you don't control it, man. It's a raging fire. It's going to consume you. That's why the Bible actually tells us what it does in terms of how we're supposed to deal with this. If you look through the scripture to see what it says in terms of our, our combat, our approach against sexual sin, it doesn't say fight. It doesn't even say stand strong. It says run. Run away. Run away. The example of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6 were called to flee. The only way to deal with sexual sin is to tuck tail and run. You've got to rid yourself of it. You've got to run away from it because it's so much stronger than we are. It's a fire. It's going to burn you bad. Look at the way James 1 uh, says it. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The fishermen in this room should love this verse. Any fishermen in the house today? Anybody like to go fishing? A few of you? All right. If all the, all the mammals die, we're in deep trouble. We have three guys who can fend for us here putting a lot of hope in you three here's the thing though here's why fishermen should love this story love this verse i'm no expert in fishing not at all but i recently heard from some friends that when it comes to fishing especially fly fishing there are tons of different lures out there that you can use and these lures when I mean, you can change them depending on the season 
You can change them depending on the temperature of the water. You can change them depending on the time of day, what type of fish is out there. There's all these different lures. And if one isn't working, you simply change it out for a different one and try again. And if that doesn't work, you try it again. You change it out and do it again. You see what I'm saying? You don't just say, oh, that's not working. I guess I'm just going to go home. No fish today. No, you keep trying until something catches. That's how Satan approaches sexual sin. The word in James 1.14 for enticed is a fishing term to lure. And Satan and his henchmen are going to lure you into sexual immorality no matter the cost. If one technique doesn't work, they'll simply try another. If that approach doesn't take with you, they'll try another. Not hooked on that one, well then I'll try something else. Eventually something will stick. That's why you got to run from this. You don't control it. It lures you in until you are hooked and sunk, man. So pornography, that's not your thing. Okay, I get that, but that, the wife of your best friend, well, she's looking real attractive now, isn't she? Maybe that's not a big deal, but that woman that just passed by you in the store, man, you can't get her body frame out of your mind. Or those romance novels, that's not your thing, but those R-rated movies, those are your thing, because it's pretty much soft porn if we're not going to, you know, kidding around about it. He's going to keep enticing you. Until he hooks you. That's why you gotta flee. You don't fight, you just flee. It's not cowardly, it's the right thing to do. It's so much more powerful than you are, and you're not gonna control it. Lie number three no one's actually getting hurt by all this. See, most of our sexual sins are done in secret because we do these kind of things behind closed doors or late at night. We do them when we're all by ourselves. It's just us in a computer screen, us in a magazine, us and some stranger. So we've come to believe that no one's getting hurt. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. I could spend hours talking about how our uncontrolled sexual appetites are the fuel behind the sex trafficking industry. Every porno you watch, every magazine you purchase, every R-rated movie, it takes somebody to be in it. And most of the people, to be honest with you, after living in L.A. for a while, most people are there against their will. So I'd say our lust is hurting them. Wouldn't you agree? But it's not just hurting other people. Our lusts hurts us. There's a wild story in 1 Kings 18. I don't have time to tell you all the details, but it's basically a showdown between our God and this God called Baal. And the test, the challenge is to see which God can light up that altar with fire. Who can, who can consume this thing with a fire? So Baal goes first. Hey, first things first, right? Ladies first, I guess. It's not a lady, but I just thought that was funny. It's not. Okay. So Baal's prophets, they start praying. They start raising their hands and they start screaming. Nothing happens. Cow's just sitting there. The wood's dry. Nothing's happening. So they get a little bit louder. They start screaming a little bit more intensely. Still, nothing. Well, they start getting desperate. So they start cutting themselves. They start hurting themselves and pouring their blood out on this altar. It sounds utterly ridiculous, but it's the exact same thing that we do. It's called the altar of sexual fantasy, the altar of sexual desire. And make no mistake about it, we shout around that altar, we dance around that altar, and eventually we cut ourselves and hurt ourselves on that altar. Here's why. Because the God behind it is never satisfied. Enough for him is never enough. More is never enough. That experience you just had, not enough. That one line you just crossed, not enough. More is never enough. Enough is never enough. Sexual sin and the God behind it always demands more of you. 
So you end up acting like the prophets of Baal. You start giving a little bit more. You start acting a little bit crazier. You start looking at sites you never thought you'd look at. You start buying more magazines. You start doing things in secret at lunch while you're at work. I mean, you start going to all these crazy extremes, and eventually you're pouring your blood out on the altar. Addictions, adultery, pornography, prostitution, that's exactly what that is. It's the prophets of Baal dancing around the altar. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the story of Amnon. His sexual sin ruins everything. It hurts so many people. It ruins the life of Tamar. It ruins the connection that he shares with his family. And if you keep reading the story, what Absalom was saying there, don't take this to heart. He was saying, don't worry about this, sister. I've got it covered. What did he mean by that? He kills Amnon two years later. So a woman is left completely destitute, a family is left in ruins, and a man loses his life. Why? Unchecked sexual sin. But it doesn't hurt anybody, Thomas. No, it hurts a lot of people. Here's the worst part about it, or the craziest part about it, in my opinion. Amnon didn't even get anything he expected or anything he wanted in return. He's finally with Tamar sexually. He finally gets what he wanted so badly, and that which he thought was going to bring him so much pleasure. And then we read the immediate next verse, then he hated her. Wait, 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 you hated her? You just loved her. You just obsessed over her. You just wanted to be with her at all costs. Then you were with her. What's the problem? The problem is sexual sin. That's how it works. Whenever you get what you want, you never get what you want. When the scripture says that he hated her more than he even loved her, it's pulling back the curtain on our hearts. It's showing us what happens deep within us when we give in to sexual sin. When the sex or the experience or the encounter or the link or the feeling isn't as good or as lasting as it was advertised, when it doesn't actually do or accomplish what it claimed, when the truth hits us, you know what happens? We become furious inside. Wait, you said I would feel this way. Wait, you promised that I would do this. Wait, you said it would feel like that, and then it doesn't, and so you're mad. You are filled with rage. That's what we see in Amnon. He got exactly what he wanted, but he didn't get what he wanted. The God of sexual sin never gives you what you want, what you want. See, sexual immorality, it hurts you. And this is literally, studies have shown that pornography affects how a man responds or can't respond to sex with his spouse. Other studies have shown that pornography distorts reality. It makes it impossible for men and women to respond appropriately to their husband or their wife. Porn and casual sex, masturbation literally changes the chemical makeup of your brain in ways you can't get back. Changes how you process, how you function. When we get trapped in this sin, we start to objectify people and human beings become its. They become toys and tools. No one's getting hurt. You kidding me? The people in the industry are getting hurt. Members of the opposite sex are getting hurt. Your future spouse is getting hurt. You're getting hurt. That's a lie. Don't ever believe otherwise. Lie number four. My kids or my spouse aren't struggling with this. Reminds me of two stories. Uh, One I read in Reader's Digest. While my wife and I were shopping at a mall kiosk, a beautiful young woman in a short form-fitting skirt strolled by, and my eyes followed her. Without looking up from the item that my wife was looking at, she asked, was it worth the trouble you're now in? (laughs) But the truth is we're all in trouble on this one. There's no one exempt from this. A friend and his wife went to a a marriage conference one time. They were talking about sexual sin and the struggles that men have. And 
And the speaker was talking to men, saying, I know that you guys are physically based, right? You're visually stimulated, so you see a beautiful woman here. You see it there, magazine, publications, books, TV, whatever it might be. And you struggle. That's just how it is. The conference continued to go on. They left for lunch. They're driving in the car, and they pass by a really racy billboard. And my friend's wife turns to him and says, Honey, I'm so glad you're not like all other men. Um, I am like other men, and I do notice that billboard, and it is a struggle. We're all in trouble in a way, aren't we? And one of the worst parts of this story isn't just what Amnon did, it's what his father, David, didn't do. David is so oblivious to what's happening in his own home with his own family, he just foolishly, ignorantly sends Tamar into Amnon's room. Oh, you're sick and you want some of her special bread? You want her to make it in your bedroom? Okay, little Amnon. Go ahead, Tamar. Go ahead. Go see him. Are you kidding me, David? If that's not bad enough, after the rape takes place, it says David does nothing. Okay, it says he's furious, but he takes no action. I don't care if you're furious, David. Step up and be a man and do something. Step up and act like the adult and the parent and the guardian that God has called you to be. And parents, I don't mean to step on your toes this morning, but go ahead and put your shoes on because I'm about to. We need to do something as well. It is our right, our responsibility as parents, as grandparents, as caregivers to shape and put up boundaries when it comes to our children's understanding and experience of sex. Some of us have no idea where our kids were last night. Some of us will let our kids hang out with their boyfriend or girlfriend behind closed doors or home alone. Some of us will let our kids watch or wear the most sexually enticing things imaginable. When Sports Center comes in, or when the, I'm sorry, the uh, sports magazine, whatever, ESPN, the, the swimsuit edition, Sports Illustrated comes by, you don't take that away from them. They're hanging those posters on their wall. What are you thinking? Oh, wait. We're not thinking. Okay, I take that back. It's a little extreme. We're thinking they're mature, they're innocent, they need to learn responsibility. They don't actually struggle with this. Wrong. They're weak, they're inundated. They don't need to learn responsibility. They need to learn righteousness, and they're obsessed with this stuff. They're constantly attacked by these things. They most certainly struggle with this. And no one's going to teach them how to fight for their purity except for you. No one will learn, no one will teach them how to, how to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus except for you. No one will help them flee from or guard against sexual immorality except for you. Listen, I'm no expert on this. But parents, if your kids are in this room today, if they're old enough to be with us, and you haven't had a lot of conversations about this, you are way late to the party. See, it's never too early to talk openly and honestly. We have nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be awkward about. Talk about it. If you haven't talked about it already, it might be too late. It's never too early, but there comes a point where it is too late. So I don't care if people call me prude. I don't care if, they, if my girl's future friends think that I'm strange or overprotective or pessimistic. I don't care if my girls themselves hate my rules or my expectations or my curfews or my dress codes. I am their parent. I am called to train them in righteousness, to protect them and wage war against the enemy that is trying to consume them. When it comes to sexual purity, when it comes to the sexual purity of my family, may it never be said that I acted like David, that I was oblivious and unaware. Nope. I will be right in there talking about it and dealing directly with it. You with me, parents? That's your responsibility.
And David shows you what not to do in this text. That leads us to our final lie of the morning. I can deal with this alone. I don't think I need to go into great detail about this one, but it needs to be said. You can't deal with the enormity of sexual sin or the shame that comes along with it on your own. I mean, this battle, this struggle is too much for you to carry, to figure out all by yourself. You need friends, trusted friends, quality mentors. You need mature advice. You need guidance. You need accountability groups. You can't do it alone. It's funny, we actually see this in the life of Amnon, right? He's so overwhelmed by all of this that a friend takes notice. Like, something's wrong, Amnon, isn't it? So Jonadab, this best friend, comes into his life. The only problem with this best friend, he gives the worst advice in the world. Oh, you want it, Amnon? Take it. Oh, you want it? Go get it. So yes, he had a friend come alongside of him, but that friend didn't give a lick about him, didn't care at all about him. And some of you honestly have friends just like that. Friends who are encouraging you to go further with your girlfriend. Friends who are pushing you to just have fun. Friends who are, who are pushing you to just push the boundaries. Those friends aren't pushing you in the boundaries. They're pushing you off a cliff. That's what those friends are doing. You need godly counsel. You need Christ-like wisdom. How different this story could have been, should have been, if Jonadab answered differently. Amnon, what are you talking about, man? There's a right way and a wrong way to handle your sexual desire. Sleeping with Tamar, raping Tamar, setting up some, some mythical situation, some, some lie so you can rape her. Are you kidding me? You're about to destroy your life, man. I know you have that desire. It's a good desire. There are ways to express that. God is watching over you. You're going to wreck your whole legacy. You're going to wreck your family. Stop this. What if Jonadab would have said that? Instead, he was like, ooh, yeah, mm-hmm. Let's figure out how to get this. So at West Bowles, we're trying to do everything we can to support you in this, to help you through this, to offer counsel that is so different than Jonah Dabbs. So it's our youth staff, I mean, youth group. I don't know if you've talked to Nathan, David, your youth leaders about these things, but you can, you should. These folks are amazing. They want to talk to you about these things. They'll never be afraid or ashamed of you. you got to talk to them about this. We have... Stephen ministers here at the church who are willing to talk to any one of us. They are trained in how to talk and pray through these things. We have a broken love men's group that meets every Wednesday night to provide the men of this church with accountability and help and support so you can overcome and make it through all this. You can't do it alone. You just can't do it alone. Don't ever believe the lie that tells you otherwise. So there are a lot of lies out there, aren't there, about sex and sexuality and lust and a lot of us have actually come to believe those lies. We believe they're true. But we serve an absolutely incredible God, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the truth. And this amazing God, even though we've lived in lies, maybe our entire life, he says, I am truth. And as soon as you come to me, if you will just cling to me, if you will cry out to me, this truth, that is me, I will set you free from all of these lies. See, Tamar asked an incredible question. She says, who will save me from the disgrace of all of this? And there's no one there that can do it. Isn't that so different in our story? Who can save me from the disgrace of all of this? Maybe one of those resonates with you. Maybe all five resonate with you. But you know what? There is someone who can save you from that. There's someone who can help you and heal you from all that mess. There's Jesus, the truth. And the truth will set you free from all the lies that you've been believing. Last passage, and we'll wrap it up. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul lists off all these sinful behaviors and lifestyles 
drunkards, greedy people. Then he says adulterers, the sexually immoral. And then he says verse 11. And that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. Oh, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You were addicted to Playboy. You were looking at your screen all the time. You were fantasizing about this, that, and the other. You were sleeping around. You were that way. You were those things. But you don't have to be that way anymore. You don't have to be like that any longer. So if you're tired of the lies that Playboy, Maxim, romance novels, the porn industry have shoved down your throat, if you're tired of living in this sexual sin mess, this web, it's time to be washed time to be sanctified. It's time to be justified. It's time to empty yourself of all of these lies so you can be filled with the truth. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer uh, just like that right now. If these things connect to you, if you resonate with these things, I want you to pray this prayer with me. I want you to follow along as I pray. You can say it out loud if you want to. You're bold in that way, or you can just say it silently to yourself. But I want you to pray this prayer with me, and then uh, we'll call it a morning. Let's pray together. Father God, we are more like Amnon than we are like Jesus. We have allowed our sexual desires to destroy us. And God, we have listened to the lies of lust more than we've listened to your truth. And so this morning we cry out to you for help and for healing. You are a great God who can transform even our most sinful parts. And so we pray and ask like Tamar did that you would take away our disgrace. Cleanse us and clean us, Father, that we may be new and white as snow. Please make it so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, thank you for being here today. Great day to be with you guys. Don't forget a dollar in the bin on the way out so we can bless a family in need. Lots of things going on. Check your bulletin, go online. Have an amazing afternoon. Come find me if you want to talk more about these things. God bless, be strong and courageous.